to the Clinical Podcast Series brought to you by the American Academy of Optometry Foundation. Today's episode is entitled Assessment of Two-Year Clinical Outcomes After Keratoconus Treatment Using Two Different Cross-Leaking Protocols. I'd like to thank our host and editor, Dr. Ruth Hyatt, and our topical expert today, Dr. Muriel Shornack. And now it's my pleasure to begin today's podcast. Hi, I'm Ruth Hyatt, a fellow and diplomate of the American Academy of Optometry. This is the clinical podcast series. So today's episode is going to look at corneal cross-linking procedures, and our topical expert is Mariel Shornack. Hey, Mariel. Uh, hey. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry. I completed a residency there and then uh, joined the ophthalmology department at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota back in 1999. I've been here ever since. My primary area of interest is scleral lenses, but keratoconus is one of the major indications for scleral lens wear. So I have a pretty strong concurrent interest in this disease. All right, great. So let's take a look at the paper. So assessment of two-year clinical outcomes after keratoconus treatment using two different cross-linking protocols was published in 2022 by Bursell and colleagues. So before we go into that, I'll just go over a couple of definitions of the protocols. So here they used a standard protocol, which had an N of 42, and that consisted of epithelium removal, stromal loading with riboflavin, UVA exposure at 370 nanometers, and an intensity of three milliwatts per square centimeters for 30 minutes. So 30 minutes was the standard procedure, and the accelerated procedure had um, an intensity for 90 milliwatts per square centimeters, and that was only for 10 minutes. So the big difference was the intensity and the duration of the two different um, protocols. So Mariel, why should our listeners even care about the different protocols that are out there for corneal cross-linking? In uh, Rochester, in Minnesota, I am not actually performing cross-linking but I certainly want to be able to discuss intelligently with patients who may be undergoing the procedure, what they might encounter when they uh, see one of our cornea specialists. If you are actually performing this procedure, you certainly want to know uh, how to achieve the best possible outcome with the least possible pain and inconvenience for the patient. You are also going to want to know, even if you don't perform the procedure, how to intelligently discuss developments in the field with cornea specialists that you might work with on a regular basis. So uh, just having a little bit of knowledge and understanding of what's going on within this particular part of keratoconus management is certainly useful for both you and your patients and also helpful for providers with whom you work um, to perform this procedure. So cross-linking isn't necessarily fun for patients. Uh, we were talking earlier about the amount of time that it takes. I would not like to sit there with my eyes open for 30 minutes while somebody was uh, trying to keep my corneas numb because they had been de debrided. That doesn't sound like fun at all. 10 minutes still doesn't sound like fun, no. but it sounds like a lot more fun than 30 minutes. Uh, the whole process of giving yourself or giving somebody a huge epithelial defect also doesn't sound like much fun. Now, these two protocols did not take a look at the epi-on procedures, 
I'm personally interested in seeing if we can develop protocols for that procedure, because I think that would go a long ways towards making patients more comfortable and might also reduce the risk of complications following surgery. Uh, if you remove the epithelium, you're always uh, putting the cornea at risk for a possible infection. Uh, if a new protocol can show equal efficacy while reducing either the time or the pain and the complications, it's certainly in your patient's best interests uh, to adopt the new protocol yourself or refer to a surgeon who performs the most comfortable and efficient procedure. So in terms of implications for just the patient's life, we want a procedure that will allow them to be as pain-free as possible and also to get back to their normal life, whatever that might be, whether they're students or employed as quickly as possible. So the study found that the standard and accelerated protocols were both effective in stabilizing keratoconus progression, and they looked at this out two years from uh, initial uh, treatment. Um, they, they thought because of the shorter UV exposure in the accelerated group, they had a faster visual acuity recovery, although there was no difference between the two groups in visual acuity recovery at two years. Um, and the accelerated protocol, just by basis of the protocol, they had a reduced treatment time, which resulted in increased comfort um, from the patient. So with that being said, what are some strengths of the study? And then what limitations come to mind when you read the study? So I think one of the main strengths was their randomization protocol. You want patients that are about at the same place in keratoconus in order to uh, make sure that you're not choosing a more reliable or better studied procedure for those patients who may be more severe, who you're more worried about. And so the fact that they were able to find two groups of patients with similar characteristics was helpful. Uh, I do think that moving forward, we may be doing more than just looking at simulated Ks when it comes to grading keratoconus. We might be looking at some of the criteria that are available on the advanced diagnostic instruments such as tomography with Pentacam and that sort of thing. That wasn't included in this study and really, frankly, hasn't been included in many other studies either that I was able to find. But moving forward, that might be a good way to stage keratoconus as you begin to uh, study treatment options. I think that the study had relatively conservative goals. They wanted to show that the accelerated protocol was equivalent in efficacy to the standard protocol. And I think they did that. However, we should point out that they certainly weren't the first group to do that. As back in 2015, there was a review of cross-linking procedures for keratoconus published in Ion Contact Lens by Constantopoulos and his colleagues. And they really found similar results to what were published here. There was another uh, meta-analysis published in 2015, or I'm sorry, 2018 in IOVS that found roughly the same thing. So I think this study didn't have a particularly novel design. It had been studied before. It had been published before almost a decade ago. But I think confirmatory studies are always helpful. With regards to study limitations, I found one of the statements in the abstract 
just a little bit potentially optimistic, shall we say. Uh, and that statement was this. Best corrected visual acuity improvement was achieved sooner in the accelerated group after one month versus three months. That was the emphasis there. And I'm always a little bit sensitive to over-concluding. You really shouldn't get out ahead of your data. Kind of like skiing, you shouldn't get out ahead of your skis. We ski in Minnesota, so <laughs> something that I think about. Uh, if you take a look at the actual data, what the conclusion in the abstract said was that statistically significant improvement in visual in best corrected visual acuity compared to baseline was reached at one month with the accelerated protocol. Statistically significant improvement in visual acuity was reached at that three month mark with the standard protocol. But when you drill down and you actually take a look at the amount of improvement between baseline and one month in the accelerated versus standard protocols, there was no statistically significant difference in the amount of improvement, or at least they didn't report that statistic. I actually did some computation with regards to visual acuity and found that at baseline, 0.47 decimal acuity in the accelerated group was equivalent to about 2042, so just a little worse than 2040. Uh, baseline acuity in the standard group was 0 0.52, which was equivalent to about 2038. So at one month, both groups had improved. The accelerated group had improved to about 2038. So it went from 2042 to 2038. The standard group had gone from 2038 to 2034. Um, I think that we can all agree that clinically, the difference between 2038 and 2034 is probably not all that dramatic, particularly when you consider that three months in, you're gonna get approximately the same improvement in both eyes. So three months later, the accelerated group was 2036. And keep in mind that the baseline there was 2042. The standard group was 2033. Baseline for the standard group was 2038. So although there was a statistically significant difference in the amount of improvement between baseline and one month uh, for the accelerated group, and we had to wait until three months to get that statistically significant improvement from baseline in the standard group. I wouldn't say that the accelerated group is necessarily getting better results or faster results. So I think just yeah. a little thing to keep in mind. So. Whenever you read an abstract, also make sure that you go in and dig into the data and decide for yourself. Just because something is statistically significant, is it clinically significant? And that's a good point. I, I almost feel like the, the, the name accelerated group kind of uh, is a little misleading as well because they do get to the same, um, as you pointed out, and the, the difference, it's it's... It's not, it, it is accelerated, but maybe not clinically significant. So that that's a, another point too. Um, so I have one more question for you. Um, so just what are your general thoughts um, about this study on cross-linking? So I think this study on cross-linking is entirely appropriate. It confirms some of the data that was out there uh, previously. So I don't think it really adds a lot of new information, but as I mentioned earlier, confirmatory studies are always good. 
I think that as cross-linking moves forward, uh, I'm a clinician, so I'm always interested in, in what clinical data is most relevant here. I think that if I were a patient who needed to have cross-linking, I could probably hold my eyes open for 30 minutes if I was able to do so and get treatment without getting a huge epithelial abrasion <laughs> first. So I would be very interested in seeing additional study on epi on versus epi off um, cross-linking. I think that analysis of corneal rigidity following cross-linking uh, could be interesting. If the cornea is becoming more rigid, then is that going to affect intraocular pressure measurements? Um, that's one of the hot topics or a topic that was hot in the sclera lens community a while ago. We all went into this collective spasm about, <laughs> oh my goodness, can we fit a sclera lens on a patient who's got glaucoma because we're going to raise the intraocular pressure? Um, I think we've calmed down and we've realized <laughs> that what we're doing now is could be raising intraocular pressure, but if we're worried about it, we're not going to count on intraocular pressure as the metric that we follow. We're going to count on OCT of the optic nerve or visual field instead, which is what most glaucoma specialists do anyway. I mean, you don't treat glaucoma based on pressure alone. You take account those other things as well. I think that any changes in anterior ocular contour beyond the cornea following cross-linking are also interesting. There was a study published by a group of sclera lens researchers that took a look at the shape of the sclera in keratoconus patients and uh, did some comparisons with patients who had undergone cross-linking versus those who had not. Uh, I think that there is further research to be done in that area, certainly. I think that uh, in vivo confocal microscopy is always interesting whenever you've done a corneal procedure such as cross-linking. This study didn't include that, but I think including that kind of as a standard outcome measurement in future studies would be helpful. And I also think that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, analysis of keratoconus staging using tomographic morphological indices uh, would be interesting. Well, thank you, Mariel, for your insight, and thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Clinical Podcast Series. And a special thanks to CooperVision for their educational grant to make it all happen.